Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology is Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how are you? Full of cold, but delighted mm. to be here. I just, uh, I don't know how, if anyone's going to be disappointed that I don't sound my usual sparkling self, but trust me, I am, I am pleased to be here. Mm, yeah, you and I were both talking beforehand about how we are both very... Uh, well, not very sick, but a little a little touch of sickness. I am battling allergies because it's the time of year in Florida where just all the pollen falls down. On Monday, I walked out and my white car was a light green because of all the, tr- the pollen that had fallen on it from the trees. So, uh, yeah, I'm sorry if anyone, if I'm a little sniffly, my allergies are pay- playing up a little bit. It almost sounded like what Chicago has done to their river. Uh, mm. in celebration of oh, St. Patrick's yeah. Day. <laughs> <laughs> the the trees were celebrating St. Patrick's Day a little early. But I don't think they were quite the same key of green as the Chicago River, were they? Because um, mm. I see that Twitter has, of course, taken this as an opportunity to <laughs> green screen whatever they like into the river, which is quite amusing. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it's it, the same as any time anyone just holds up a piece of paper in a news broadcast or anything it's like well that's going to get changed to something else online very quickly they will they will never learn and um why should they it amuses me <laughs> so we'll get on to the news and i think our first story has to be the laurie laughlin felicity huffman college scandal that broke this year or week or the uh, college admission scandal where it's revealed that laurie laughlin who is probably best known for being in full house and its recent incarnation fuller house as well as a bunch of uh, films and tv shows that she's done for hallmark over here and felicity huffman who's obviously famous for being one of our great living actresses were caught up in a a very large-scale sting of people who had been uh, basically paying people to get their kids better scores on SATs to get access to kind of expensive uh, Tony kind of universities or, you know, kind of pulling strings to get them uh, um, academic scholarships when they were no good at the sports that required scholarships. And I found this to be very interesting just because like when I first read the story, my first response, and it was the, the response I gave to you, um, was, that doesn't seem too bad. Not mm. necessarily because this is, is, like, illegal, which it is, but more in the sense of, like, this seems like something that rich people do all the time. <laughs> so, like, well, I think I'd become so inured to the idea that rich people just pay money to get their kids into really good colleges that they don't deserve to get into that this sudden like burst of interest in it came as a surprise but then obviously when people were talking about you know people from less privileged backgrounds not being able to get in particularly on sports scholarships which can be a really helpful way for people from disadvantaged backgrounds to you know get a good degree in a good college and kind of escape from you know a, a, a cycle of poverty or discrimination and the fact that they had also used loopholes for uh disabled 
students to try and get in also made it seem that it was really just awful all round in the specifics and not just in the whole, yeah, you shouldn't be able to just leverage your wealth and success to get your dumb kid a slight leg up in life. (laughs) Sorry, I just raised your dumb kid. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, of course, the internet had a field day because Felicity Huffman is... I can't remember exactly their legal status, whether they are married or long-term domesticated, partnered, but their children, uh, their issue. (laughs) William H. Macy is, of course, now embroiled in what appears to be what every single character he's portrayed ever has been Mm. in. Life imitating art, vice versa. Lots of people were finding tweets from Felicity Huffman's account. She has a kind of mothering, parenting emphasis on the mothering um blog called what the flicker Mm. based on her nickname but also i think a lot of people were saying what the flicker huffman but a tweet where she was like you know what are your hacks for for school and of course everyone was ripping (laughs) that apart and various um screen grabs from desperate housewives uh which is a shame because lynette was always uh my favorite but she was not beyond doing a dirty deal every now and again to make something go away and that aside because I think the um, the immediate level and certainly the one that I had and that you had Ed is like oh it sounds ridiculous but it's not so bad right like mm. it's but that first reaction is of shock and then you go into making all of the jokes and then you unpick it and you unpick it and the more that's come out particularly op-eds in terms of this is actually the crux of like what American class is and what the American Mm. class system is. And in terms of the absolute (laughs) spiralling cesspit of really unhelpful conversations about class that are happening right now in the UK, um, because no one in the discourse is coming out well. Mm. And there are lots of good points to be had, but no one's making them in a good way. Again, with this, it's that the thing that I I absolutely like the rest of, certainly the people I follow on Twitter, absolutely love a a fraud story, particularly when Mm. it's really rich people involved. Because, I mean, this is like fire Festival in a way, right? But like, you look at the Anna Delvey case, for example, which is, there's something... That's just incredible about the story because at its heart is a mystery, which is how are they able to get away with it for so long? Particularly in Anna Delvey's case, because she essentially just managed to get away with a wing and a prayer, being seen at all the right parties, and somehow managed to coast off a lot of people who knew each other in quite a small circle, not talking about (laughs) things whatsoever. And seemingly the grace of many an exclusive um, five-star hotel in Manhattan, who were just like, it's it's fine, the money will come. I don't know how uh, their business model operates, but everything came far too late. But that's fascinating, and I cannot wait for the inevitable biopic about it. I just hope that it's Mm. not... uh, I hope and pray it's not Aaron Sorkin who adapts it. And the thing with um, Laurie Loughlin and Felicity Huffman, they are, of course, the two named people, although this is a huge fraud circle. Like, this is a a ring of a scam. Mm. Like, but... There is something about that we're able to pluck out these two women and a lot of people are saying, oh, this is actually, 
you know, there's sexism here, there's misogyny here. And, you know, what the fact is we're living in patriarchy. There's always a grain of that to everything. But mm-hmm. I would say in this case, there is a hypocrisy because you look at Laurie Loughlin and Felicity Huffman and they were making money off of presenting themselves as parenting influencers of that generation, right? Like Laurie yeah. Loughlin popped up a lot in her daughter's YouTube videos. Her daughter, of course, then making her own uh, income from getting sponsorships from like Amazon Prime Student and mm-hmm. uh, interviews are being shown around her like, oh, refreshingly relatable college dorm room and how I just think it's that it's that hypocrisy. But at the, at the very core of this is that nugget of like, but you are so rich. Why? Mm. Do it the old fashioned way. Donate a sports wing. Name it after yourself. Yeah. And And it's this... It is bringing out this idea of what college means, mm. and and I just wonder. I I don't. I'm not actually aware of how far their kids are into their college uh, careers. Right. I mean, the fact that mm. you even really call it a college career rather than a university sort of duration or what what year they're in essentially. Right. In college, because I want to know what their grades are. Like, what if yeah. you what if you go through all of that effort? You you absolutely use your aching privilege to further push down the whole system that that was built for which is meant to help re- like address and rebalance um society and yet you could go through all of that and your kid could still get chucked out of college because their grades aren't good enough or what or what yeah. happens like what what were the what do the colleges know what do they not know and i just look forward to many an affidavit and subpoena going forward i think yeah, I think it's going to be very interesting to see how it plays out because a lot of people have said this is like maybe one of the more egregious examples of something that just happens all the time. And you're right, it does really shine a light on what a college degree means because it, it really does feel as if, you know, if you are already fairly rich and probably set for life, it's really just a status thing yeah. for people to say, I went to Harvard, I went to Yale, or whatever. And whereas, you know if someone from a disadvantaged background had gotten one of those places instead, it could represent a complete change in their life. It wouldn't just be a status thing. It would be, oh, this could open doors for me further down the road. And it really is a case of the already very rich and successful and privileged levering that as a way to just enhance themselves even further at the clear expense and demonstrable uh, expense of people who could probably use that that opportunity far more and in ways that could genuinely alter the course of their life as opposed to like I really don't imagine that like a degree from an Ivy League university would greatly enhance the lives of a lot of the people whose children are involved in this not at all not financially not I mean the closest it's going to be for them is an accessory it's like being yeah. bought a Prada handbag. That's that's all that that is. And you wonder w- whether there there were some suggestions in some reports that the kids didn't have any idea about this, which yeah. is a really psychically damaging thing to do to your child. Mm. Which and I I I'm not entirely sure many of the other parenting decisions they've made uh, might might not be anything other than psychically damaging if if you're leading up to this, because if you mm. don't. You, you are essentially creating a fantasy world 
for them and yeah. and you will breed I, I i can't see how that's not gonna just lead to this narcissism and why would you want your child to be a narcissist so i think we can criticize the choices of these parents endlessly and you know what an awful shame is that there is this kind of not that this is the um the the worst <laughs> shame to be found in all of this but i'm really sad Ed, because <laughs> william h macy seemed like a cool guy <laughs> yeah they're all dropping like flies in many different i mean this is uh you know it's like oh a, a break in the her- horrific and and right crusade in rooting out all the, the like the, the constant historic and and current abuse that's happening but it's like oh you're you're a you're a weirdo in a different way great cool um you're literally mm. stealing from the mouths of uh of disadvantaged young people cool 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 mm, yeah i think we're rapidly rapidly heading towards the point where every movie and tv show in hollywood is just going to be john mulaney acting against himself <laughs> he's the one he's the one he's the one i'm hoping is good Okay, our next story uh, is a Netflix story, and it is about Netflix cancelling One Day at a Time, the fairly critically very loved sitcom that uh, they've had aired for three seasons on the network and constantly seemed to be on the verge of cancellation every time the show debuted. The cast and the creators all came forward and said, you know, Netflix are unsure, we're on the bubble, you know, show your support, tweet at us, tweet at them and let them know that you're watching the show and that you would like it to continue and things like that. And so the axe kind of finally fell on them, which is not necessarily that much of a surprise. But what I think really made this particularly notable was Netflix's, the way that Netflix went about announcing it, which was first they said, we have decided to, we've made a difficult decision to cancel one day at a time on their Twitter account. And then they continued with a series of very cloying tweets about, you know, how, you know, oh, if you feel like you were seen because of this show, you know, we respect you and we're still going to try and tell your stories. And it just felt really weaselly as a way of basically saying we have made a very uh, cold and calculating decision that diversity actually doesn't matter to us that much as long as ratings are good and we don't really care that much if people like a show. Uh, even one that by all accounts probably didn't cost that much because it was a multi-cam sitcom and they're not the most expensive thing in the world to make. And also we did it without releasing any data to let anyone know if people were watching this show at all. And in general, I think it, for a lot of people, hopefully, I think it, it should serve as an example of how Netflix, for all their talk of being sort of different from all of these other networks and studios, are really just the same as all of them, but kind of with a little more, a little more savvy, I guess, and a, oh, we're pushing back against the system veneer. Weasley is right, Ed, because let's not forget the timeline of this. What was it, a little over two weeks ago, where we had the Make Room Uzo Aduba um, yes. fronted publicity? And it's just, oh, okay, great. Like, it, it, just, it just smacks of hypocrisy, and maybe that's my word for the week. Mm-hmm. But, okay, so you, you make room for these people and their stories... And then you make room for what? A bird box too? Like, mm. I, I don't understand. And also, Netflix seems to be just in this real crunch point of, I do not understand why 
they are treating their streaming service like like a traditional network because mm. they accrue views. It's not like they just drop something or or have to drop something because it doesn't get the immediate ratings. Like it's an archive and stuff can kept be going back to and I suppose the difference is like what what money a Netflix actually putting into the show being made because am I right it, it, it's actually a Sony made show is that right yes that's right right so what are Netflix actually losing by keeping it I don't understand so it's hard to say why they're justifying commissioning another series when to me it seems like they've definitely not put coughing up as much money for it as they would something else like say you Mm. which is a very glossy Netflix original or, you know, the Umbrella Academy, or maybe that's just a one-off. I mean, this is the difficult thing. Netflix is con- is a confusing thing at all times because it doesn't have just one model in terms mm. of producing originals, but it seems to have this really cutthroat, old school, it's all about ratings. Why? Because that's not how people view Netflix. And to say, oh, you know, your stories matter to the Latinx community on one of the only networks that's probably going to take a show like that and run with it and actually nurture it and believe in it really is a smack in the face. I think it looks like there might be enough of a um, fan outpouring where it's able to find a home somewhere else, not dissimilar to the Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Save Nine-Nine. Yeah. Um, campaign which you know was immediate <laughs> um aggressively positive and successful but i wonder um if uh, gloria calderon kellett i'm worried about her because she tweeted ricky gervais saying how wonderful his new show was and i'm like gloria don't do it <laughs> we'll help you i promise you don't have to go to him because that's the other thing what did i see at glasgow central station the other week blasted everywhere all over the screens ricky gervais's new series afterlife what has yeah. netflix done for one day at a time what has it done how has it helped it other than um just kind of having it there for a bit and like you say it's had this sort of damocles over it from the start so surely if you do want to make room why wouldn't you be more pushy with the algorithm why wouldn't you encourage people to watch it and it all goes back to a lot of what Paul Schrader said in his Facebook post not that long ago. God, what world are we living in? <laughs> yeah, no, a real a real sentence I can say now. Paul Schrader on his Facebook post talking about, you know, the algorithm is still kind of god. And mm. and it's not and it's not a mistake. We can't just say like, oh, you know, it's also automated like real people make algorithms and real people put their biases into them. So you're right, it's weaselly and it smacks of hypocrisy in how Netflix have done this and announced it and it's a really bad way to handle everything. Mm. Uh, in stark contrast to that, a company that in the end did the right thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Disney announced this week that they had rehired James Gunn to direct the third movie in the Guardians of the Galaxy series. He was fired last July after a coordinated... Uh, largely bad faith campaign against him where a bunch of kind of alt-right uh trollish provocateurs i guess is the the nice way to describe them uh, resurfaced a bunch of old tweets that he had written which were um pre- pretty 
horrible in the sense that he was making a lot of very, very poor taste jokes and trying to be kind of edgy online. But there were things that people had known about for a long time and he had apologised for them. And by and large, his his work since then had kind of very little to do with this particular persona that he had coming out of, you know, his work for Troma and this incredibly trashy and deliberately boundary pushing work that he had been doing previously. And there was a huge outcry at the time. A lot of people um, have been pushing for Disney to rehire James Gunn because they said, you know, this is a real nothing of a story. This isn't a case of someone having caused like direct harm to people through mm-hmm. their actions this isn't like a someone who's been found out to have committed acts of violence or sexual assault it's someone having made very bad jokes for which they have apologized about on numerous times and tried to be better about um but then you know disney said no you know we're cutting ties with him and then over the past year you know like dave bautista who is in the guardians movies was very vocal about how he wanted him back there were lots of other writers who kept talking about how james gunn should be rehired and bits and pieces of the story kind of like started coming out. It's like, oh, Disney still wants to use the script that James Gunn had written. And you're like, okay, so I guess he's still kind of in the window. And then there were there was no concrete reports of them having found anyone to hire him. And then this week they basically said, yeah, we decided we were going to hire him again like months ago, <laughs> but uh, now we're announcing it. So it kind of seems as if. Part, partly they say, because um, Alan Horn, who is the one of the heads at, at Marvel and Disney, basically said, I was very impressed with how he handled the whole thing. The fact that he didn't throw, he didn't kind of kick back at Disney, that he was very graceful in the whole thing, convinced me that, you know, it was right to try and get him back whoever we could. So it just seems like a case of common sense eventually prevailing, but yeah. having wasted most of a year of a lot of people's lives in terms of people who you know kind of campaigned on his behalf um but also you know the cast and crew involved in the guardians of the galaxies movies who were just kind of like are we ever going to make another one of these like is anyone going to want to make another one of these after all of this stuff that's gone on but yeah i think i think by and large this is a pretty good outcome of what was always a fairly stupid thing (laughs) Yeah, I've got nothing to add to that. <laughs> I think we're going to our main topic this week, which is, I'm kind of basically saying is changing your mind, which is uh, instances of us encountering a work of art, you know, kind of maybe earlier in our life, not really liking it or liking it a lot. And then like years later, revisiting it and thinking, Ooh, and or like reassessing it in some way. And this was for me brought on by my decision this week to rewatch the Mission Impossible series of movies which were movies that uh, I've been watching for most of my life. I know that I've seen the first one probably about 20 or 30 times because it was just one of those movies that was always on BBC Two. Um, (laughs) Just whenever they had a slot to fill, it's like, right, Mission Impossible's going on. And of course, I watched it pretty much every time. And there are a series of movies that I really love. Um, even the second one, which is not a very good movie, is at least bad in really interesting and strange ways. Uh And... I what I found really interesting about it was as I was watching them kind of some of my assessments of it kind of of the series shifted every so often like the first one holds it very well the second one still bad but at least I find having now watched more like John Woo movies mm. and having a greater understanding of of what he was trying to do and why it didn't work but then I got to the third one which I remembered really really liking when it came out and now find it not bad but like really more of a transitional work as if they're like 
we're trying to kickstart this thing off again and we're going to really try and make it work and it not 100% working but having a great villain in Philip Summer Hoffman um, but the real surprise for me was Rogue Nation which I've seen a few times now and I've I really really enjoy and love and I think is a really great wonderful action movie but then I went on like letterboxed to just kind of like post some thoughts about having watched it because I log everything obsessively and I noticed that like my original review it was like three and a half stars <laughs> and I was like I don't remember disliking the movie well three and a half isn't disliking but I don't remember yeah. kind of walking away from it thinking god that was slightly above average <laughs> uh, whereas now I'm like oh this is like one of the best action movies of the last decade what are you what were you talking about Ed of three years uh, four years ago but yeah so that, that was kind of got me thinking about instances where you know you, you watch something uh, at one point in your life and then you kind of revisit later and suddenly your perspective on it has shifted in some way. Speaking of Philip Seymour Hoffman it's occurred mm. to me another film where I actually had a positive reassessment of it because in the run-up to this, uh, when you shared the idea for this episode, Ed, I was really struggling to think of any film I'd re-watched after first thinking, oh, it wasn't very good or it's oh, it all right, and then changing my mind being like, oh, actually, it's really got its merits, which tells you a lot about me. Mm. <laughs> There's plenty of films I've seen that I really liked at the time and then watch again and for whatever reason just really cannot cannot stand it at all but Philip Seymour Hoffman you're talking just there possibly one of the most resoundingly almost quasi-spiritual film rewatching experiences I had recently was a couple of years ago I was fortunate enough to be able to go to Venice with my friend and we would in the evening because Venice is not really a party town and we are not really mm. party people. It wasn't really Venice that was stopping us. But we would watch whatever Venice-themed films that we could find. And the talented Mr. Ripley, of course, has mm. quite a big section in Venice. And I remember watching it years ago, maybe taped off telly, which goes to show how long ago we're talking. And I couldn't sit through it. And I found it really bloated and slow dull and then watching it in Venice with a glass of wine I was like was that even the same film it is suspenseful and gloriously shot like really beautiful the character dynamics are amazing Philip Seymour Hoffman is fantastic Jack Davenport it's always nice to see him I don't think he's in enough um always <clears> seems <throat> to be uh, coming to a bad end near boats though so yeah maybe needs to have a chat with his agent Kate Blanchett and I think Gwyneth Paltrow manages to skewer this kind of ingenue role as well in which she is and she isn't and she brings a lot of depth to it and I think it's a really it's a it's a modern classic of of filmmaking so that was incredibly positive and I seem to have completely forgotten that Philip Seymour Hoffman was in it as well and he's one of my favorite actors ever mm, he's he's very good in it as well it's like such a big bold confidence character as well it's so atypical from a lot of what he certainly what he was doing around about that time yeah for sure and you can see the threads of someone starting to think he'd be great as Truman Capote as well I think mm. from that role and the amazing thing about Philip Seymour Hoffman is that any time that he was on screen you never thought you were watching someone acting and I think he just manages to ground everything that he's in even when he is a larger than life seemingly over the top character 
you just always felt like you were watching someone. And then the other experience of watching a film and then coming out of it, changing my mind about it positively. Again, a recent one, Inside Llewellyn Davis. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because I remember watching that in the cinema and finding it really tawdry and tedious. And then watching Mm. it again, not that much long after, maybe a year or so. And then I think there's something about that was a film that actually warranted being very quiet and one-on-one with it instead Mm. of being in a big um, cinema. I was in screen one for GFT and I think the week it had come out and it's the new Coen Brothers film. So it was packed out and then actually coming to rewatch it one-on-one, like the loneliness just felt apt (laughs) and, and real. And it felt much more private and, all of um, Llewellyn's kind of, you know, he 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 came across as I believe the Coens intended him to, as a wounded animal, not a kind mm. of arrogant. Um, although of course there's a lot of that in that as well. But there was weirdly something about like, oh, I'm I'm really glad I watched this on a screen at home <laughs> rather than in just left um, my judgment of it as the experience in the cinema. Mm. Yeah, that, that's a movie that I think I first watched at home because it was one of the first movies I remember getting a screener for. When, oh, wow. Uh, as, for awards consideration. And so I remember watching that at home and really being really being wowed by it on first viewing just because, like you say, it is so quiet and intimate and cold. So <laughs> and, cold. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really that and... Uh, Talented Mr. Ripley, a really interesting contrast. So one movie, you can feel the heat radiating off of it. And the other one, you know, when he's trudging around Chicago, you really do think, Christ, this is miserable in like the best possible way. Like, this really does feel, you can really feel the cold seeping into you as the movie progresses. But, but yeah, Talented Mr. Ripley, I think, was one for me that has grown and grown on repeated viewings. I think I liked it the first time, but it was very much like a, oh, that was good. Mm-hmm. I liked that, but not not necessarily kind of being bowled over by it. But it's a movie that I've watched a fair few times over the years now. Like it's something I return to, particularly because in between watching it for the first time and watching it subsequently, I've read, I think pretty much all except the final of Highsmith's Ripley books, and so now I've got kind of a a very different relationship to that movie because I have this knowledge of what the character how the character is written in the book how he changes over time across this this whole series the things that the book uh, the things that Mingella kind of emphasizes that aren't necessarily in the book like his um the the film kind of really plays up the homosexuality or uh, of the character in a way that is kind of only hinted at in the book like it's more in the book it's more like oh, Tom Ripley is just a manipulative psychopath who will just use anyone to get whatever he wants. He doesn't really have any compunctions about what that involves and who that who he ends up hurting as a result. So that and that I think that's quite a point of contention amongst like people who are fans of the of Ripley's books about how much the homosexuality is played up in uh, Talented Mr. Ripley, the film. But mm. it, for me, what's really I really love about it is it's just so bifurcated a movie. Like the first half is really kind of sultry and unsettling and you're kind of these characters are all kind of feeling each other out and trying to figure out 
what they want from each other, but they're also having fun, you know, together in this kind of really beautiful Italian vista. And then halfway through, uh, Tom Ripley cracks <laughs> Dickie Greenleaf's head open with an oar, and then suddenly the movie becomes unbearably tense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, re- I really love the way that that shift is handled. Another movie as well, um, Philip Tim Hoffman, I think I talked about this ages and ages ago, like right at the very... Uh, beginning of this podcast I, I had a wild reassessment of Hard Eight the first Paul Thomas Anderson oh, movie yeah um, which features Philip Seymour Hoffman in one scene actually kind of playing a similar character to what he plays in uh, Tennessee Mr Ripley like a much bigger and kind of brasher character than maybe he would go on to play at various other points in his career but it's um, that was a movie where I remember watching it and walking away from it and thinking it was just like real kind of like sub Tarantino-y and like real kind of generic 90s indie and I don't know how it happened I don't know if like I was watching a lot of similar movies at the same time and in my mind I like mixed them all up because when I rewatched it I was like oh the plot from this is entirely different from what I thought it was and Mm -hmm. the things that I disliked about it before were entirely with this kind of betrayal plot line that I thought was in the movie but actually isn't (laughs) and so when I rewatched it I was like oh no this is like a really really wonderfully shot and really poignant character study of this this relationship between these two men and how it kind of slowly falls apart over the course of a movie and that was a movie that I just like did a complete 180 on from thinking it was just like a real early misstep in a career that would go on to do so many more better things to now thinking like oh no it's like he was he was really good from the beginning he got better obviously but Mm. like he he was uh, he was pretty good from the start was pta (laughs) another filmmaker another anderson in fact um who's i think i have had very much a a kind of a long arc of growing to like them over time is, is wes anderson who yeah I now like a great deal. I don't uh, like everything that he does. Like I didn't, I wasn't that fussed about Isle of Dogs, but mm. most of his movies, particularly his recent couple, like the uh, Moonrise Kingdom and Grand Budapest Hotel, I thought were really wonderful. For a long time, like every time I watched one of his movies, I walked away just kind of thinking that was pleasant <laughs> and not really having the strong reaction to them that a lot of people I know have you know a lot of people really loved it and for a long time the only one of his movies that I really liked was the Royal Tenenbaums which is still my favorite of of his but yeah for for a long time it was like okay that one I I like and the others I think are kind of okay and kind of a little too mannered for me but then weirdly after Darjeeling Limited which is probably the one of his that I revisit the least but that was the one I liked the most on first viewing and the one I kind of felt really had this kind of aching sadness to it that is in a lot of his movies anyways but like it was really up at the fore after watching that I went and rewatched like all of the older movies and I was like oh no I suddenly like really get what he's going for now Mm. and I don't know if something about Darjeeling Limited unlocked that for me or if it was just like you know you you're you get a little bit older like at the time that I was watching Darjeeling Limited like I just graduated from uh, university and I was like starting my first proper job and like going through this kind of like period of transition and a sense of you know uncertainty about 
what I wanted to do over the next couple of years and things like that. But a story like that, that, that kind of unrooted story that he's telling in Darjeeling Limited kind of really uh, resonated with me at that moment. And then I think going back, I thought, oh, that quality that I like in that movie is like apparent in all these other movies. You just had to maybe wait a while <laughs> until you're in the right frame of mood or you'd had the right experiences in life to really get what uh, understand what it was going for. Yeah, for sure. I, I have that with every year I try and rewatch When Harry Met Sally mm. um, as the autumn sets in and horribly relevant <laughs> 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 as with each increasing year. And it's interesting how kind of, I hesitate to say loyalties, but I'll say it, loyalties with, with different characters and who becomes seemingly more, you know, who are you screaming through the screen at more? Mm-hmm. That shifts for sure. Yeah, I think also one thing that I think uh, affects how I feel about some movies is my own willingness to own my taste about oh, movies. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I uh, think thinking, okay, I can say that these canonical movies do not work for me. I don't have to say, oh, everyone says these movies are great. I will also say that they are great. And the one for me would be something like Robert Altman's MASH. And yeah. I like a lot of Robert Altman's movies. And I think he has made some like great ensemble movies, some great comedies. MASH for me always just feels like this real sour, uh, not especially funny mess. Mm. And particularly like the, the more time goes on, it's like, yeah, it kind of hates women a lot as well. <laughs> like that's a big part of... <laughs> big part of that and it's i think that's kind of a, just a thing in a lot of 70s movies anyway but yeah it's like it feels like really apparent and really ugly in that and that's one for me where i really distinctively like after years and years of thinking oh you know everyone says this is really great it's real great satire just kind of thinking yeah i just don't really enjoy anything about it <laughs> and as much as i like all the people involved i kind of feel like they all made better stuff that dealt with similar tones and styles and themes much better for sure and i think the tricky thing with something that's satire in particular is like is it satire or is it just mean mm. there's there's a definite line um i found that with animal house oh yeah that's that's one i uh, everyone says is really great i i think i tried watching it once and got to the end of it and i thought well i guess everyone took some lessons on how to improve on that yeah. <laughs> and make comedy better yeah i mean i think when the highlight is john Belushi's character is seen as this like hero but he's sort of he's terrible and like all of them mm. are terrible just in different ways um so it's quite revealing in terms of the american male psyche at that time but if the highlight of the film is him pretending to be a zit then <laughs> oh boy okay but yeah being being able to be up front with people and and Kind of go against the, I know the film canon, like all that kind of mm. stuff. I think that's something that you, hopefully, everyone should cultivate. And I, I never seem to watch films anymore. So God, maybe I'll um get further into my convictions, um, or just rewatch everything I've already seen and see if I still feel the same. But you're right. I think being able to be more upfront about your taste and check back in with things and watch them again and see. And be honest, particularly if it's something that's seemingly like a sacred cow, is definitely um, a skill everyone should practice and also appreciate. 
from other people. <laughs> I think it's, it mm. should be it should be a two way street in terms of the conversations on film Twitter. Mm. Yeah, and I think it is also it's there's a difference between disliking something but honestly trying and trying to engage with it and just sure. straight out contrarianism, which yes. has its has its its um, values contrarianism because it does force you to engage with ideas that maybe you haven't considered before and to take things from a different point of view but i think there is a difference between you know trying to have watched mash like dozens and dozens of times and thinking no this just this just doesn't work for me i like the sitcom better the sitcom feels like it does a lot of this stuff like in a way that ends up working a lot more and like i remember someone on uh someone on twitter the other day talking about how they watched carrie to the uh the rage and saying like i don't understand all the revisionism about this and i was like who the hell is saying that carrie 2 is good like that feels like maybe people are being weirdly contrarian about uh, a movie that's not great but yeah. um but yeah I, I i do think i i i always try to take a crack at things as much as possible and to really kind of get around to it like the the, the probably the big canonical hero of art house cinema that i've just never got on with really but at times have convinced myself i got on with is antonioni who yeah like i i kind of enjoy blow up but i much prefer like what de palma did with it with blowout like the same basic idea but done in a way that's less formless and i i, I think there's a place for his like he's he, visually he's great and he's gets good performances out of people and there is kind of a uh a sensuality to his work that i i appreciate but at the end of every antonioni movie i kind of thought i kind of think like well i could have watched something else <laughs> and probably would have had a better time of it yeah for sure like like the conversation as well um mm. you know that's absolutely gripping and i think the thing is with a lot of that kind of particularly um american british 60s cinema it's like oh well everyone was on a lot of drugs mm -hmm. yeah. and it's a fantastic uh, slice of capturing the time when everyone was on a lot of drugs which sometimes make for nice visuals but don't really often make for brilliantly cohesive films a lot of the time and i think with someone like antonioni there is a you know it's it, it like it's art house, like but heavy, heavy emphasis on the art when art house was was just sort of starting, rather than films mm. now, which art house films now, which are still sort of challenging. You know, there's it's not to say that there aren't films that are really kind of challenging in content and form, but I think with Antonioni, I just feel like I have watched something that's more like a piece of video art, as we'd call it mm. now, um, yeah, or or an art installation but I don't have the same connection to it or relationship with it that, that I would a film. Yeah. There's something I think quite, you can, you can either challenge your audience or you're trying to um, purposefully distance them. And I have very short shrift with that. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. And I think in terms of, you know, the history of film as well, when you go back and you watch older films, sometimes you can watch something like La Notte or whatever and think, okay, I can see where a lot of other filmmakers took inspiration from this and went on to do things that, for me, work better. But this was very much someone 
blazing a, tra- a trail that no one else had really done much before and therefore it you know it, it's something that feels very much of its time mm. and which is not the same as like when people say dated i'm just basically saying this thing really caught fire because it was something that people had not seen someone really do before yeah and then it's incredibly important for that reason and influential and it should be in the canon of great cinema because of the people that who the people who saw it, particularly, you know, American filmmakers watching Antonioni and Fellini and Bergman and all these directors and thinking, OK, I'm going to go and uh, do I'm, I, I see something in this that I want to recreate or I want to use to influence the work that I'm going to do. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to walk away from it saying, yeah, that was a great piece of cinema that I really enjoyed. It's You can say that was a great, important piece of cinema that I probably will never watch again. Yeah, yeah. Is there is there anything that you're interested or that you have in the back of your mind, Ed, that you'd like to go back to? Are there any films that are on your rewatch list? Yeah, I'm, I, in fact, uh, speaking of Fellini, I do really want to go back and rewatch La Dolce Vita because yeah. that was a movie I watched fairly early on in my kind of like budding cinephilia and I hadn't seen a lot of like Italian neorealist cinema and that that is that isn't quite neorealist but it's kind of towards the tail end of Fellini's neorealist period before he became kind of more kind of theatrical and grander and more expressive and I really like his later expressive stuff far more than uh, I liked La Dolce Vita but I, I have also now seen like um, Knights of Kiberia or whatever where yeah. you 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 see that and you think oh this I like this I like what he was doing here maybe I would like La Dolce Vita more now than I did when I first started watching it and didn't really have much of a frame of reference to it because really yeah. all I had a reference for it was like the picture of um Anita Ekberg I think is the lead yes. uh, of the, the, the kind of the main female character in the Trevi Fountain and the title and you think oh this is going to be some kind of like great sweeping romance you watch it's like oh it's kind of like a dissolute journalist having a bad time <laughs> you kind of think maybe now having a better sense of what Fellini's work was about and what that movie was trying to do that I may like it more now than I did when I was 19 20 years old yeah it's kind of a horrible irony of that film is that the one of the most iconic images from it is Anita Ekberg having a lovely time in the fountain. That's not what the film is about. <laughs> no, no, but it's very much the. It's kind of like um, Breakfast at Tiffany's in that regard, in the sense of like, yeah. you know, the, the iconic images. Audrey Hepburn being incredibly glamorous, and while the movie obviously plays on that a fair bit, you know, the the story of that movie is not just, hey, look at this really glamorous woman <laughs> walking around New York. Yeah, we've also got. Um racism too amongst other yes. things yeah <laughs> also i think in terms of like not just specific films but how my relationship to certain artists i think that uh, have changed quite a lot over the years i think the more an artist puts out more work the more you have to kind of reassess how you feel about the work in it in their totality yes. and how everything kind of fits into each part and for me probably the artists whose work I have kind of most reassessed over time are the Wachowskis yeah because for them like I saw the Matrix on VHS in like 2000 having had 
everyone I knew who had seen it in the cinema say, this is the most amazing thing ever. And I watched it and thought, well, that was really, really great. And being really excited for the sequels and being very mixed on the sequels and then losing interest in them for basically a decade, really. I didn't see much of their other stuff. Um, But then I saw Cloud Atlas, which is a movie that has a lot of questionable creative choices in it, Mm -hmm. but is a kind of like amazing feat of world building, of editing, of the way in which it tries to collapse and connect all of these different lives being lived at different points in history. And it is this like real bravura, audacious work of art that doesn't um, stick the landing on everything it tries, but it tries so many things that it made me think, wow, I, I kind of really need to reassess, you know, what I think about the Wachowskis in general. And then, uh, you know, seeing things like Sense8 and Jupiter Ascending, which isn't a uh, particularly great film, but is, you know, a, a bonkers and crazy and enjoyable movie. Yeah. Um, and then also seeing Speed Racer, which I do genuinely really like and think is huge fun and is, again, just so weird and strange. It, 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 I have gone through this real kind of thing with the Wachowskis where I went from liking them falling off with them and thinking they were just kind of like a one-hit wonder to suddenly thinking oh like these are like two of the most interesting and compelling filmmakers of my lifetime and even if they aren't not everything they do works for me for this even the stuff that doesn't work is far more interesting than all of the kind of good middle of the road filmmakers who only ever hit like singles and doubles and never really swing quite as big as they have for sure and as someone who is not in any way um a proclaimed action fan as a mm. team they are the most some of the most formidable action genre directors hands down uh, okay so we end this episode as we end all our episodes of shot reverse shot recommends in which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you the listeners will enjoy as well emily what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week well i have an app to recommend well, streaming platform, however you want to term it. It's called Next Up, and it is essentially a streaming platform for comedians, particularly in the UK, um, but they can be of various different nationalities. Um, but it's a bit like a bit more rough and ready Netflix specials instead of commissioning comedians to do shows or, or finding super global established comedians um to um get specials it's a lot of people of varying different um stages in their career across the uk stand-up crowd and i think it's brilliant because there is still there's still some kinks to be worked out with it i think but a lot of the shows do a lot of the shows are filmed in a rough and ready fashion um live from above rooms in pubs and it gets across a much truer sense of what the the experience of stand-up comedy than necessarily um i mean we both love him but john mulaney at you know Mm. radio city that's essentially watching a stadium gig and you in next up you do feel that you are in um a room above a pub and that's where i always want to be (laughs) cool i'm going to recommend a documentary which is on hulu over here in the u.s it just came out on hulu and has has played in cinemas and I think it's in cinemas in the UK at the moment, which is probably the best way to see it because it's a real 
overwhelming cinematic experience, which is the movie Free Solo, which just won the Oscar for Best Documentary just a few weeks ago. And is it's a really interesting character study of a guy called Alex Honnold, who is a free climber, a free solo climber, someone who climbs rock faces and mountains without any equipment, who over the course of the movie plans to climb uh, El Capitan in Yosemite Park, which is this 3,200-metre-high sheer cliff face, which basically no one had ever free-soloed before because it's an incredible... To do so requires an incredibly complicated route that has, you know, no room for error. So the movie is, on one level, about him planning this out, you know, going on test runs with ropes to try and work out a route that would be... Uh, possible without any support and on the other one it's a kind of a study of him as a person what it takes to be that focused you know to want to climb something like that to want to put years of your life into planning it and to get into the right physical state the impact that lifestyle has on your romantic and familial relationships and what it means to lose friends who also do uh, free solo climbing and die as a result because it's an incredibly dangerous sport and I, I just found it to be really compelling I uh, as I joked on Twitter just said fuck no a bunch of times watching it every time he's climbing <laughs> I'm just like oh no why would you do any of this this looks so dangerous but it really is yeah, but that's one of the things you know you go to the cinema so to or, or watch movies for is to you know get a view of a very different life than one you would choose to live uh and that's the, very much the case here um i found it to be incredibly compelling on a small screen and like i say i think if you can see it on a big screen it would really benefit you know the the movie's visuals because in order to capture the free uh, the, the the free climb itself you have people on ropes holding the cameras on the side of the cliff as well so you get all of these incredible all of this incredible footage of Alex as he climbs the mountain and it is really, really cool and exciting. If you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, uh, Acast, Spotify, all the usual places. Leave us a review, rate us and recommend it to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. We didn't die. (laughs) (laughs) 